This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we're speaking with an associate in our New York office, Michael Nosenchuk, who has kind of an interesting background and interesting practice at our firm. Michael, I think you told me that you grew up outside Detroit. Yes, correct. And, and uh, tell us, I mean, you went to a, it sounds like you went to a private school there. I went to a private school, very uh, arts focused. Um, so, you know, I think from a young age, I had a, an appreciation for art and architecture. Um, and, uh, you know, I think in many ways took it for granted because it's the only school that I attended until, until I went off to college. Only school, you mean from like kindergarten through graduation high school? Yeah, there was a, <laughs> in the yearbook, there's a, you know, a picture of the 12 or however many kids started and finished together in the same um, cohort. And I was one of them. Anything, any thought at that time when you were uh, growing up that you might be a lawyer? I don't think uh, I thought of becoming a lawyer at that time. I think that, but the two areas that I was really interested in were writing and politics. And so I think those sort of naturally um, led me to the law, um, you know, and just sort of the writing combined with sort of the, being the role of an advocate. So where did you go to college and what did you study there? I went to Skidmore College in upstate New York and I studied, uh, was an English major and sort of crafted that around uh, screenwriting. So I sort of had a concentration in, in creative writing and screenwriting specifically. At that point, while you're going to college at some point, were you ever thinking about law or becoming a lawyer? I think that's when I first started to think about it. Um, I had a friend who was a couple of years older and he said, you know, if you, if you think you might want to go to law school someday, you should look for a job as a paralegal when you graduate. Um, just to keep, you know, because law schools like to see people who have done that kind of work in the past. And, and so, uh, so that was sort of, the extent to which it was on my radar probably at that time. Did you have any lawyers in your family or cl close relations? Uh, not really. My, I was actually the first in my family to, to go to, to finish college. And um, so the, my dad, you know, works in the construction field. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I didn't have a lot of academic role models um, or people who were in professions like law or, or right. academia or, or medicine or anything like that. Well, I mean, you did pretty well for yourself. Skidmore is a really good college and you ended up studying English and screenwriting. And, you know, this idea had been planted in your head about maybe law was a possibility for you. So after that, I assume you went directly to law school. Uh, I did not. I was actually, um, it was probably another five years before I ended up, uh, starting law school. Um, my first job after college was at a law firm at a very small firm, um, basically a white collar boutique. And I was a paralegal there. Um, and interestingly, you know, we've been, uh, at that time we were working on a case that um, became a major sort of, they call it the art case of the century. I think there's a documentary about it. Um, 
involving uh, dozens of forged, allegedly forged artworks um, that were sold for tens of millions of dollars. And the lawyer on the other side is now a partner who, with whom I've done the majority of my work here at Quinn Emanuel. Right. So you, that's Luke Nikas, who was involved in that case and is uh, featured in that documentary, which I've seen. I think it's called Made You Look or something like that. That sounds right. Yeah. Right. And um, so surprise, surprise, it turns out that you end up working at the same firm. And as we'll discuss, working with Luke. But let's go back to when you're a, you're a paralegal. A small boutique firm. What city was that in? I mean, when you were telling us about how you got to be a lawyer, you're in Skidmore. You have a degree in screenwriting. And where is this law firm that you were working at after that? So it was on the Upper East Side, and at the time, it was actually in the founding partner's residence that um, sort of took up two floors of a, of a brownstone uh, that he lived in with his family on the Upper East Side, and now. Um, it's since expanded, and they're in the same building as uh, the Gagosian Gallery um, on Madison Avenue there uh, on the Upper East Side. And how, how long did you work as a paralegal, and, and what did you do next? I worked there for about a year. Um, I started to get a little antsy. Um, I thought I had saved, you know, at the time, what seemed like a lot of money um, after a year. And so I decided to go. Uh, I bought a one-way ticket to South America and spent a few months down there. And when I came back, I decided I wasn't ready to sit at a desk. And so I decided instead to sit uh, in a car and become a New York City taxi driver, <laughs> which I did for a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, no, n not many people uh, drive taxis in New York City. I mean, what, what was the appeal to you of driving a taxi? For me, I think it just... It seemed like it offered uh, more flexibility and, and just there was a sense of adventure, um, not only because I'm not from the city and, you know, it was all sort of new to me at the time, but also just because even if I had been from the city, I mean, I went to college with a lot of kids who grew up here. Um, very few of them uh, ended up becoming cab drivers or had parents who had been cab drivers, although a couple did have parents who drove cabs in the 70s. but um this was also before uber so i mean it really was a vibrant um time for the yellow cab industry you, you must you must have uh, gotten to know the layout of the city pretty well the knowledge as they say in london that's right i mean i uh i wouldn't compare new york city cab drivers to london cabbies i wouldn't um, either <laughs> i mean they're really they're like you know basically have the equivalent of a phd in in the geography of london but um but i think I that's becoming a lost art now though too unfortunately I mean, I yeah london yeah. drivers use google maps i think i think yeah i mean i had to study my butt off for this test to become a taxi driver and i don't even think that test is required anymore because um you're allowed which you weren't at the time when i did it you, you weren't even allowed to have a phone in the car they've since updated those rules obviously but um Okay, well, what, what takeaways or life lessons uh, did you get from driving a cab? Maybe some good things, maybe some not so good things. As you look back on that experience, what did it contribute to who you are today? I think the first thing that comes to mind is a sense of humility, being treated like 
um, not very nicely uh, by strangers and sort of really, I mean, you obviously get a lot of nice folks as customers when you're driving a taxi, but a lot of people are just nasty or they don't even see you at all. It's like you're invisible to them. And that was actually good for me, I think, because, you know, all the things that I thought made me special at the time I realized, you know, we're not going to cut it as far as, you know, forming an identity. And so I had to sort of, uh, I realized that, you know, an identity does not come from where you, you know, where you grew up or where you went to school or, um, it, you know, it's something that you cultivate from within. And so I think that was sort of the main takeaway. And then obviously just a cultural fluency that, you know, I was growing up in Michigan, I just wasn't exposed to people from, you know, I'd be sitting in the garage getting ready for my shift and there'd be like 17 languages being spoken all around me. And so, right. So that was also very new to me. All right. So you drove a cab for a couple of years. And I assume by that point, you've gotten the adventure and been to South America. You got all, all that out of your system. And so you finally went to law school. Um, not quite. Almost. So I spent about another year, year and a half working in sustainable agriculture. What, what is that? What is sustainable agriculture as opposed to other, other kinds of agriculture? So I think, you know, I think it, it's a pretty broad term and it can mean different things to different people for, for the way that, you know, we practiced it where I was working at, on a vegetable farm at the time um, was that, you know, we're rotating crops, we're using, we're not using um, fertilizers or pesticides unless they're, you know, made of all natural ingredients. Um, we're basically adding to you know putting back in the soil whatever we took out um so that we don't end up you know having to just you know with a piece of land that is no longer productive after 20 30 years so so you went from driving a cab to being a farmer in the hudson valley hudson valley yeah um about 100 miles north of manhattan all right and and what were the life takeaways from being a farmer? Farming, I think, is very uh, therapeutic, and working with your hands and and your body, um, I think it frees up a lot of room in your head to just sort of figure things out. So that was something that you know I think it sort of helped me catch up to myself in a way by just having that time just out in the field, you know, ten twelve hours a day. And I think it also teaches you sort of patience and the ability to do something very repetitive and tedious for long periods of time, which, you know, came in handy when I did go to law school because <laughs> my body was sort of, um, I went straight, you know, I literally came from the farm and, you know, still had my farmer's tan when I showed up at law school. And physically, I was prepared to be sitting for many hours because I was used to being crouched over, you know, weeding a bed of carrots or whatever it uh, was. It, that is hard work. I come from a small town in Utah and I used to work, I used to work on a farm. And as a 10 year old, I would go out and pick radishes, Michael. Mm -hmm. And I was paid three cents for a dozen bunches of radishes. Think about it. Three cents. I've reminded my. I remind my kids are sick of hearing about this, and that was back. And then we would, uh, you know, shuck corn and uh, get rid of the weeds and things like that. 
I don't miss any of that. I didn't learn anything from it, except I don't want to do physical labor. Now, I'm a guy who can suffer. You know, I've done the Hawaiian Ironman twice. I'm totally into that kind of sport suffering. But what I learned from farming and agriculture is I want to have nothing to do with it. Yeah, I think that's a fair takeaway. I mean, that was <laughs> essentially, you know, I thought that maybe I would be able to, um, you know, have a long-term impact on the field of agriculture or sustainability as a farmer. And then after about three days, I realized that maybe I wouldn't do that with my hands. Maybe I would do that, you know, in some other way. Okay. All right. So, you know, having been a paralegal, driven a cab for a couple of years, become a farmer, then you thought you were ready to go to law school. Yes. Then I think it all happened pretty quickly. I mean, it was like the I applied like three days before the deadline at the end of March. And, and then in August, um, I was accepted, uh, to the school that I, there were pretty much only three or four schools that were still taking applications that late in the year. And so I came down to the city. I started at Fordham, which I really enjoyed in my first year. And then I ended up transferring to NYU uh, and finished there in 2019. Did you kind of feel like you had to go through these other very different jobs, you know, before you were in the right place mentally to go to law school, you had to get something out of your system or yeah. how did these other things contribute to your becoming a lawyer? I think that's right. I think that when I looked around, you know, did a survey of my section in my first year of law school, I was probably one of the oldest students there, even though I was, I mean, still in my 20s but being having been out of school for five years um i felt like i had a slightly different perspective you know that i was a little bit more focused on the big picture and um not kind of getting lost you know i didn't think of it at every as every task as just a strictly academic homework assignment you know i thought of it as as my job and you know i kind of prioritized it in the way that i thought would make sense for someone who's, you know, in a program that is ultimately intended to prepare you for, for working in a, you know, in a practical setting. Did you enjoy law school? Did you feel like, well, I've made the right decision. This is something I can do for the rest of my life. I really, I did enjoy it a lot, you know, until probably towards the end, I started to get a little bit antsy. Um, you know, I was ready. I think that's a common feeling that, a lot of yeah. people feel like the third year is unnecessary. It was the first time in my, as as a student that I I was always curious. I think intellectually curious, and I always enjoyed um, thinking and talking about, especially you know books and literature and what uh, and ideas. But it was the first time that I really truly applied myself as a student, and um, I found it to be uh, surprisingly a lot. Uh, more fun when you actually know what's going on and you're not faking it. Um, so how, how did you end up at Quinn Emanuel? You know, I had an open mind in terms of employment you know, at law school. I think I came in thinking I would do maybe be an immigration lawyer or an environmental lawyer. And then I took, you know, environmental law and I said, okay, I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, these people are like basically scientists and um, I don't have a background in science. Um, I think that when I started to look at the private sector, uh, Quinn Emanuel stood out 
in in several ways. For one, they weren't participating in in the in the OCI interview process, so that already intrigued me. That they yeah, were playing. We, we, we went a couple of years there where we weren't interviewing on campus. Right. We thought we thought we could do better going on our own. We later changed course on that. Right. So I was, I, I believe, um, I was the first summer class that you know after a couple of years where the firm didn't have a summer class, and there were five of us. And um, all of us had, you know, none of us were recruited. I think all of us had reached out to the firm um, and asked if there were any opportunities available and sort of, um, and, you know, and it turned out there were, I don't know if the firm, you know, if, if we were the only ones who reached out or if it was just um, sort of the firm's way of sort of wading back into a full, um, to having a, you know, a full robust summer program. But um yeah, I think the fact that the firm it seemed like a, a sort of less distinct environment than, you know, I would go into these other firms and go to their offices and there was a, all of them had, I think, um, immediately, you know, I had a sense of a, a mood or a tone or a culture that, you know, you start to pick up on. And it was harder for me to put my finger on it at the Quinn Emanuel office in New York, other than that, you know, these people are all very smart. Um, but, you know, I can't tell what, what is the thing that sort of everybody has in common. Kind of a heterogeneous group of driven people, maybe. Yeah, I think that was it. Um, and there just seemed like a lot more, you know, there, I think at the time, this is before COVID, not having a dress code was pretty somewhat revolutionary. And I think that it creates an environment where people are a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more themselves. And as a result, you know, they come up with some wild ideas and some of them, some of which may be good. Yeah. And a lot probably aren't. But anyway, what year did you start with the firm? So uh, as a summer associate, I think that was 2018. And then I joined fall of 2019. And what kind of work have you been doing since you joined us? So as a summer associate, they asked me, do you want to, who do you, they sent around like a questionnaire and, you know, anyone you want to meet? And, and I, I really didn't know anybody at the firm. So I started, you know, I went to the website and I saw, I recognized Luke Nikas on the website and I recognized him as the opposing counsel in, in this case, you know, that I worked on as a paralegal. And um, it was a fascinating case, a case that, um, you know, got a lot of, attention in, in the art world at the time. And so I said, I want to meet, you know, I don't, he won't remember me, he, but if I say that I worked on that case, you know, we'll have a, at least a lot of interesting things to talk about. And, and we did, and we ended up, Luke was my mentor uh, as a summer associate. And then when I joined the firm as a first year associate, um, we, you know, picked right up where we left off that summer. We were working on a a case that was five years later, just to, just decided by the Supreme Court, uh, a fair use case involving where we represented the Andy Warhol Foundation. We weren't involved by the time it made it to the Supreme Court, but we were actually the only of the, you know, between the District Court and the Second Circuit Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court, uh, we were the only firm who actually got the ruling in favor of our client, which then was not able to withstand appeal. Well, Luke, uh, along with uh, our partner, Marin Shaw, I think, 
probably have the premier art disputes practice, I would say, in the world. And you've been a key part of that, as I understand it. There's a lot of your time you've spent working with them on arts disputes cases. I mean, what do you enjoy about working on arts disputes? I mean, a lot of times they're just another breach of contract case that happens to involve a work of art or a copyright case that happens to involve a, a piece of visual art or the like. What, to your mind, makes that practice different? I think two things um, make it a little bit different. One is just that there's an element that's not purely commercial, uh, sort of a philosophical or you know, intellectual sort of ideas-based component where you know, the outcome might actually shape the way that culture um, operates or, you know, shape sort of the, the rules by which cult culture can grow or, or evolve. And that, to me, is really exciting to know that, you know, as a result of, of a case where it might define the boundaries of fair use in the visual arts or... Well, so that's one side of it. And then the other side of it, I think, that I've enjoyed is that these are not cases with, you know, 10, 15 lawyers on them. They're often relatively small disputes in terms of the amount at stake. Um, obviously, for the clients, these are very important matters that often represent you know, a bulk of their a significant chunk of their business. But you know, the the relative size of these cases meant that as a junior associate, I was often the only associate or one of maybe two associates on these cases, um, which allowed me to really uh, participate in, I think, many aspects of, of the case from, you know, drafting a complaint and up to preparing for depositions that you wouldn't normally get to do in your first or second year out of law school. At one point, you thought you were interested in screenwriting. Any parallels you see between your interest in screenwriting and your law practice? Yeah, I think my interest in screenwriting is what, in many ways, what compelled me to become a lawyer. I think at some point I realized that I wasn't going to write for only for a self-serving purpose. I couldn't find the motivation to do that. Um, and then I, I think at some point I realized that when you can combine, when, when, when the words you put on the page have an impact on someone's life outside of the page, then you're, you know, by writing, you're also acting and, and really acting as an agent. And, and I also realized there was a built-in audience, you know, you can write something that no one will read, but as a lawyer, there's that you have at least probably two people have to read it um, <laughs> who aren't your parents. And so I liked, you know, that sort of raises the stakes of, of, of what you're going to put on the page is that knowing that someone is definitely going to be reading it. There's an analogy that's often driven between trial practice and uh, being a director of a theatrical piece in that there's a casting element. You decide who plays what role you have some ability to script it. Um, you have some ability to create a theme. Uh, like, I mean, you can't literally cast. I mean, you're, you're given a cast of characters, people involved in the underlying events. But you decide who you're going to use, who you aren't, who you're going to use for what purpose. 
in what order you're going to use them, what are your strong points, what's your high ground. I mean, that's an analogy that's often made, and I, I think there is something to that. Definitely. I think um, all of those things are true, and, and in addition, you know, you want all of those things to sort of combine in a way that will move someone emotionally. I mean, you, I think it's important for lawyers to remember that the judges are first and foremost people. And I've learned that telling a good story that moves someone is still, at the end of the day, the most important thing that you can do as a lawyer. You have to, jurors generally don't want to be there, their minds wander. You have to reclaim their attention. I think like every 10 seconds, there has to be some reason for them to pay attention to what's going on in the room rather than thinking about who's going to pick up the kids from school, what they're going to prepare for dinner or whatever. I mean, there's definitely that element to it. Yeah. And I also think uh, on a similar note, you have to be economical. You know, in 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 a film, you have an hour and a half, two hours to tell your story and so you necessarily have to figure out what that story is and and you know which scenes are going to be indispensable to that story and to getting your message across and which are just i was reading a book recently that by george saunders where he's sort of teaching a writing workshop and he says you know writing is not it's not like reality tv you're you're not there to just depict things that are happening for no reason everything that happens in a story has to happen for a very particular reason and so figuring out how to be economical um you know especially um when you're dealing with page limits or or time limits in a courtroom setting um all of those things i think translate from you know between the two from screenwriting and filmmaking to 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 practicing law. Well, Michael, thank you very much for sharing your journey with us. We very much appreciate the work you do at our firm, that you do for our firm and for our clients. We've been speaking with Michael Nosuncha, a lawyer at Quinn Emanuel in our New York office, and his journey that led him to be a lawyer, and in particular, a lawyer at Quinn Emanuel. This is John Quinn, and this has been Law Disrupted.